at midnight, I walked to the middle of the day. You're listening to the Talk Editions Podcast, episode number one. I'm Laura Cox, Buddhist of Talk. And I'm Charlotte Mundy, vocalist of Talk. Away from the sounds of my camp. And I'm Bethany Young of Not Talk. Was was so... Uh, I'm going to make some good and some bad, bad waves. <laughs> I felt myself dissolve. I don't want to be trapped in this stupid little box. So wear something over your head. It's stressful. And there's no gravity, which means there's like no soul. Too much nuance for me. That Well, their teeth are too obvious. Today on our show, we're speaking with composer Bethany Young about her new work, At Midnight I Walked Into the Middle of the Desert, which talk will premiere on December 14th at St. Mary's Harlem on 126th, alongside a new world premiere from Brandon Lopez. Bethany is a composer and performer whose work plays with anti-irony nonsense as spiritual awakening and the place between situations and theater. She builds incredibly individualized works, often centered in the physiological dramaturgy of performance. So Bethany and I have known each other for 12 years now. It feels like a very long time to know someone, um, but also not long at all, because time flies when you're with good people, and we didn't know each other that well for the first several years of that time, but we did take Theory 1 together. We went to Oberlin together, bonded over a shared love of goth rock from the 90s. You can't, you can't drive a wedge between that kind of love. You had really cool hair. It was sort of neon, if I remember. And this, like, funky haircut. It was, like, you know, it's sort of vague in my memory, but I remember thinking it was really cool. You liked my vague hair. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and then Bethany wrote a solo piece for me a year and a half ago called Oxygen and Reality for piccolo electronics and balloons as exterior lung sacs. So, Yeah. <laughs> We go back. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm not sure what the first time was that I met you. Maybe at Darmstadt? You know, the first time I saw you perform, and I can't, I think I may have talked to you just for half a second and got nervous and ran away, but I saw you perform um, Morton Feldman. Oh, at Constellation. Yeah. Three Voices. Three Voices, right. Oh, nice. At Constellation, which was when I was in Chicago. But I feel like the first time we had a conversation, yeah, was at Darmstadt, mm-hmm. 2018. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about this new work called At Midnight I Walked Into the Middle of the Desert, how it originated, what's the story behind it? Yeah, so because I knew everyone on sort of a different level, I thought, you know, I mean, some I'm obviously very close with you, Laura, and, you know, I don't know Madison very well, but I thought, like, okay, a great way to kind of connect would be if I gave this sort of text prompt and you guys wrote text and that sort of establishes some sort of spiritual with a lower s bond of some kind so I mean that was kind of my thinking so I sent this I don't know if you could call it a prompt but it was just kind of this scenario or space that could potentially inspire members of talk to write a sort of poetic response in a way, thinking about their own memories. So I asked for a false memory and a real memory using my own text as like 
a vehicle for almost getting in the mental space of writing about your memories so that they kind of all have this similar character. And they really do. They all do have a lot in common in terms of how the writing came out. So Charlotte, Laura, and Marina all submitted text for that. And then I didn't do that much editing of the text itself. I cut some things because some some were really long. (laughs) But... Yeah, I made like a vocal mock-up of what we would do with your voice, Charlotte. So with my own voice, I recorded various ways of speaking the text until I got something that I sort of liked. And honestly, I didn't really like what I had. I was like, "Mm, this is okay. I have to just move forward. I can't keep struggling over this. And then when you and I met together to record it with your voice, you were able to sort of imbue your own self onto what I had made in such a way that I thought it really came to life and it was it had such a different sound and I you know like I think I've told you this before sometimes you get sick of your own voice at least I do I'll be like I'm not growing anymore because I keep returning to these same habits and so working with other people in that way it kind of opens my mind to like okay we're working on something that I started, but you're putting this entirely new framework around it, and that really excites me. So yeah, we made these recordings from those texts with your voice instead of mine, and it's really exciting. Very different from mine, actually. I found that so much fun. Yeah. That form of collaboration is really interesting. Yeah, I feel like if somebody asked me to do that, I would maybe cave under pressure a little bit. You just showed up to the studio, and you were like, oh, let's try this, let's try that. And we got amazing sounds that I was very inspired from. And once I had those recordings with you, I felt like the piece was already written in a sense from there. It like gave me the structure that I needed in order to write the rest of the music. Your process, does it often sort of take that form of having half an idea and, or, you know, having Mm -hmm. an idea that you're not totally happy with and sharing it with someone else and like building it together? Yeah, I have found that that generally is what works for me. Of course, there's pieces where I just didn't have that privilege to work with people um, and draw inspiration from. Um, And it's not like those pieces aren't as good or something. I don't think about it on that level. But I do find that I would say generally I feel less close to those pieces. They almost have less... I don't know if I, this is too heavy of a claim, but they they don't have as much weight in my life in the same sense as when I work with someone, it challenges me, it pushes me more, and I just feel like there's more investment all around in the in what we're making. And yeah, I guess I draw a lot of inspiration from people. I really love people. Sometimes I hate people, but... <laughs> Can you remember like when you started working that way? Yeah, I didn't work that way. For a long time, like most of my education, I didn't work that way. I, so I was living, it was after Oberlin, I was living in the Netherlands, and I like heard this piece of mine called Lexicon. It's for piano with people playing on the inside of the strings. And I was like, this is so boring. It had no life to it. And I think that was like a wake up call for me to, first of all, change my notation pretty, um, severely I guess and I just felt like okay I need to be more honest with myself about like what music making is for me and then I yeah I think it happened gradually 
as I started being more honest with myself, more people were taking interest in my work. I was taking interest in them. And then it just kind of became this realization over the past only like five or six years at the most. And I'm still trying to find those boundaries there of working that way um, because I still don't really know where they necessarily lie for me. I was looking through the work list on your website and in 2015 you wrote the piece for Speaking Pianist, Her Disappearance, which is for two people, vocalists speaking into PVC pipes, and Speech Factory. Right. which is just for you speaking. And well, I, was just, I was like just looking at it, looking for patterns. And I was like, oh, 20, 2015 was maybe the year when you started thinking theatrically or using text in a different way in your work. Yeah. So I already had been thinking about text, but I think what happened in that year was I started working more closely with people and developing the text. In the Netherlands, I wrote a paper about like musically simulated speech. So I was starting to use my own voice as a compositional impetus, but it wasn't quite getting me to that point. Yeah, 2015, you're right. That was like a really important year for me. What happened that year in your life? <laughs> that was the year I moved to Chicago, and I found all these musicians who didn't give a fuck and just wanted to work with me, even though I wasn't affiliated with an institution, you know, I had nothing to really um, claim at that time. But everyone was so open and willing to try stuff out um, without really knowing anything about me. <laughs> so I guess I just got lucky because I got to work with people and I realized, oh, this is what I've been missing. Yeah, it was really rich for me. You know, I, I say this all the time. It's becoming a little trite, maybe, but I've always learned way more from performers and composers, I guess, that are, I'm working with as a performer of their work, but way more in that context than from a composition teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious. I want to get back to your text a little bit and kind of talk about what you were aiming to create with the prompt that you gave us. Because in some ways it's very, very specific. But then as soon as you establish something specific, you kind of peel it back and it becomes this very abstract negation of it. It almost reads like a world-building exercise for a book or something about hypnosis. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I have a little chunk of it here just in case people are curious. You want to read it? You have a good voice. Okay. And I also want to note that like I read back on this text today, and I did not remember it being this long. It was it's, very long. It's really long. Yeah. yeah, okay. A very small excerpt is, all of its many facades, manifestations, could be spuriously read as prophetic devices. The only way to interpret the matter is to focus on its expressions, if even only revealed as false memories. Have I mentioned the dust? Should I, should I, res should I respond with something now? <laughs> Yeah, just how you, what this world was evoking for you or how you started at chipping away in the construction of this world. Okay. And if it was kind of a thing where it's right. like, I, I know all these these people differently, so I'm going to engage them by a text and invoke yeah, yeah, that, their yeah, text. Yeah, You know, what are you trying to find with the text that you gave to us? Well, I kind of want to throw a curveball, <laughs> maybe. But, well, it's also like just wanting to include you guys in my headspace, what I was thinking about and what I was just dreaming of 
realizing even musically with you guys. And I was just like, well, you guys should know what's going on with that too, first of all. So that was part of it. Second of all, it's just it's just a way to bond with you all. But also, I wanted that sort of world that I was constructing with all this dust and memories floating around and sort of limbo, but not limbo. It's very abstract. Creating this world to then impact what you would come up with. Also, a lot of times I have to do a lot of writing to get going on a piece. And I was kind of digging into not knowing where I was. I was in New Mexico at that time. And, you know, whenever you're with family, there's such a weird feeling of being stuck in time, even though you're developing a new relationship at the same time with that person because you're in a different context. So I was with my brother there. So I was working through a lot of that and... You know, summer is always evil because it forces you to reflect so much and everything slows down and stops. And I just felt like I wasn't moving. And I was like, okay, I'm this just kind of finding a way to poetically perhaps reflect on that experience. Did you feel like your immediate surroundings geographically were also a representation of that mind space you were in? I wasn't sure if it was that or the other way around. I was like, Am I here because this is where I'm at? Or am, or am I here because this I is where at? I'm at? <laughs> yeah. Or did I write about this because I'm here? So I, I wasn't sure what was happening. I think maybe on the surface it would just seem the answer is obviously that I'm writing it because I was there, but I was kind of convinced that it wasn't like that. And that kind of, you know, I planned this trip so far in advance. I bought the tickets way before I could have known where I would be emotionally. So I thought, like, oh, it's almost prophetic in that sense, almost a prescience happening there. I, I don't know. But it could also be that be, where you were psychologically was affecting how you saw your surroundings. And if you had been a com- yeah. in, in a completely different psychological space, you might have still been like, oh, New Mexico is exactly where I'm supposed to be for this. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Um, but yeah, New Mexico is so weird. It's, it's really inspiring. You said when you had the recordings of Charlotte and the text that had been developed, that the rest of the piece kind of wrote itself. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the connection between the musical material and the textual material in the piece. Because um, we have, I mean, we have our first rehearsal on it in a few days. So I feel like I am, I'm also going to be learning things that are helpful here. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to give too much away, but maybe that's a funny way of thinking about this, giving things away. Um, There's times where musicians are lip syncing along with the text, so that's maybe the most obvious engagement happening there. I guess I didn't want whatever you guys were doing to be too divorced from the text or too married to the text. So kind of exploring the contact between what's coming out of the speakers, the text, and what you guys are doing. Um, And so like shifting in and out of that relationship in different ways. But a lot of what is happening with the live performers is the way I think of it is contextualization for what will come when we have these real words, you know. So you guys are sort of setting this abstract world that morphs and changes and then maybe prepares, maybe doesn't prepare for the next text to enter. 
and then responds to that but doesn't quite respond to it. So it's just this like very um, ephemeral, porous sort of exchange happening. Do you feel like the the musical language speaks to or interacts with the text prompt that you gave us that we read that little snippet of? Yes, it does. But as you start to compose, for me personally, the material of what I'm composing starts to suggest new languages. And so there's parts where Ellery's like spilling shit everywhere, dropping beans on drums. It becomes very chaotic. And so that wasn't necessarily something I would think as being totally related to what I was originally thinking about, but it seemed like the music itself started to suggest that. And so I just was like, okay, I gotta listen to that. It has a mind of its own, maybe. What does it feel like when the music suggests something? Because I feel like people say these kinds of things a lot, or they talk about like, like the music being kind of prehensile, <laughs> and I, you know, I kind of can relate. I understand that perspective somewhat from a performer, but I, I don't know that I understand it from another perspective. I guess when I'm writing music, I never feel like it's mine. I think a part of me feels like it's something outside of me, and it is. So I'm not trying to create a scenario where the music has to follow what I'm doing as much as trying to also engage in a scenario where I'm following what the music is doing. And is that like if you were listening to it, what you would want to have happen next or it cues you in in other ways? Um, Maybe it's a matter of desire too. But I also think when you're looking or listening to what you have, you're like, oh, there's that like surprise element, some sort of serendipity sometimes of like, oh, isn't that funny? Oh, maybe that's something I didn't think of, but just engaging with the material, like, oh, this is an option now to me that I hadn't been privy to before, and that would create a new set of layers and parameters to think about that could actually maybe tie in the piece more, or a new set of problems. (laughs) I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. No, this is great because I feel Does like I, I never know what people are talking about when they say this. So just to have it's really like, hard to answer. Yeah, but people do say this, and I don't know, Charlotte. Do you feel like when you're practicing something, you'll have a feeling of like, oh, I know that this is where my body needs to do this, or like this is where this needs to go? It seems to me like performing something that someone has already written down is very different because we're already dealing so much with something that's been given to us, as opposed to like making something out of nothing. So practice is interesting because especially working a lot on technique or working on new techniques that you have never done before. Yeah, you have to like sort of ask your body what works. Mm -hmm. You have to feel around until you find a thing that does work and then do it over and over again until it's a habit. But Hmm. I wonder if when I hear people talking about a piece as if the piece knows what it wants, it's, I imagine it's something to do with listening to your intuition rather than listening to your conscious ideas of what you thought you wanted or what you think is right or, I don't know, following your plan. Instead of following the plan, you follow your intuition and you're just taking one step after another into the mm-hmm. dark. Maybe that's a mode of misbehaving that's important. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I think it also has to do with not over-identifying yourself with what you're writing that I think is really important. Because if you do over-identify it, I think that, like, at least for me, there's this risk that it becomes choked in a way or, like, doesn't evolve the way it maybe could or should. I guess that's kind of like practicing and trying a technique until you find one that works as opposed to... Just doing it the way you this think way it I'm should to do, do it, it and yeah. doing it over yeah, and over again yeah, and like yeah. hurting yourself. That risk, <laughs> yeah. that risk yeah. is like yeah. really humbling. So when you were writing this, you were in New Mexico, hanging out with your brother, probably being like 
a little overheated, but then getting radically cooled down by air conditioning, which I'm going to say was your process. (laughs) Um, Do you have any sort of writing rituals that you engage in when you start a piece? You said you Mm. often have to write a lot to get somewhere or to Mm -hmm. kind of parse out what you're thinking. Uh, I feel like my writing rituals aren't that interesting. to be honest they're interesting Um, to us okay okay uh yeah I do a lot of writing throughout the whole thing so that's a ritual I have to be writing pretty constantly something about writing just makes me firm up my thoughts gets me to the core of what I want to express I've tried drawing some representations of what I want but with drawing I can never get at nuance and so with writing I can kind of explore different like nooks and crannies of what I'm thinking about and you know the piece always deviates from what I actually write in a major way but that doesn't matter mm-hmm. after two hours I take a break and watch a lot of animal videos mm-hmm. and then go back <laughs> to composing but other than that you know I have to be reading something that's interesting because um, that always stimulates me do you like to do like multiple two-hour chunks in a day like spend a whole day writing or do you can you composing little bits at a time? Uh, It depends on the day, too. Like, sometimes I can compose. I've had those days where I'm like, oh, my God, I've been sitting here for almost eight hours straight without even looking up. And that's always, like, the best feeling. But that's on a good, really good day, rare day. Usually it's like, ooh, a little bit here. Mm, I'm not in the mood anymore. Oh, yeah, it's coming back. It's really all over the place little desultory I guess. Is there something you've read recently that was like very particularly inspiring? Recently? (laughs) Honestly no. I've been reading this book it's it's kind of dumb. It's stuff about space for dummies who know nothing about space and science. I don't know if it's inspiring though. It's more just like okay I should probably know this stuff so. (laughs) Is it like this is what a black hole is? Yeah basically. And it's written as if you're going to get really bored by all of its content, which I kind of find annoying because I'm not bored by its content, but it's almost apologizing. So it's just justifying itself yeah, the whole time? It's, it's as though really they think weird. black holes are boring? It really is kind of a stupid book. But at least the content, the content is there. It's just the form of this book that I'm not crazy <laughs> Sometimes the only way to get that good content is to go through a form that you're not super happy about. Yeah, exactly. Composition lesson right here, people. <laughs> what is your composing background? Why did you start composing? Uh, what is my composing? I mean, I had a piano as a kid, and I played it constantly. It's kind of funny. I had really severe asthma, and I had to be on my inhaler thing all the fucking time. So I would kill time by just sitting at the piano. Oh, like those devices where you're like hooked up to something and it's... Yeah. That was when I was really little though. So it like, I kind of grew out of it. So that kind of, we had this like old crappy, it's like a hundred year old piano. It sounds terrible. The action is terrible. It weighs like 200 pounds. Uh, I started making up like little songs on that. And then I got this piano teacher who was this elderly woman who lived on a farm and he'd walk into her house and it smelled like cow shit and now I associate cow shit with like really positive emotions it's so funny and then when I was 13 I found this lady at Hochstein School of Music it's like this little community school in Rochester and she taught me how to notate what I 
was making up on the piano. She actually made me write a 12-tone piece, and maybe that's how I got into Oberlin. <laughs> I saw the other shit, and they were like, oh, I don't know. What do you think it was about composition that interested you? I mean, I wasn't that interested in just playing the piano. Like, I wasn't that interested in playing other people's music. But you wanted to be part of music. Yeah, I, I liked music. I was a hyperactive person, always, and it just was a really good way for me to get out my physical drive with a piano as an instrument. But I could be really impulsive by improvising at the piano and then gradually construct something from there. And I liked that ability to be super impulsive, and I've kind of come full circle to that now in my process, trying not to like stifle anything too much to keep it alive. I remember going to the Nutcracker with my family and being like, this is what I want to do. You know, just like having that moment when I was really little, just being like, yeah, this is it. And it somehow never deviated from that. I was sure I was going to be a conductor as well. Um, but I'm also glad I didn't do that. So what would you be doing if you weren't a composer? Do you have secret or not secret? alternative career fantasies yeah I've had like a bunch maybe psychology of some kind what about like wildlife rehab with your friend Laura that would be amazing <laughs> I always loved animals and thought like okay I, I could work with animals in some capacity I used to really like dancing ballet that wouldn't have worked out <laughs> <laughs> why not uh yeah I have a lot of joint pain so <laughs> Thank God I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it would have prevented the joint problems. Maybe. It's like being in New Mexico in the headspace. You, you would know? have built all the right... It's like yeah. physical therapy in a sense. You could have just had your mm. joints removed. Yeah. That's what they do, right? <laughs> that's, that's how they it's dance. LA, right? <laughs> do you have any major influences sonically or in this field that uh, you know really make your heart sing? I really, really love Sivan Cohen Elias's work. I did a piece of hers... I helped develop it as well in Darmstadt with Mockrep. So that was my first experience working with her, and then I've seen a lot of her pieces since then. She works collaboratively. There's always this theatrical element. She likes to create really odd scenarios out of music that are, I think, really conceptually quite challenging and interesting. So, like, I'm very hot onto her work right now and a little obsessed with it. And, you know, I'm TAing for this music humanities course, and we're just doing the very Western classical music thing. And I'm just, like, really into what we cover with the students. And I think it's because the students make me excited about the music more than the music itself. I have, like, this different relationship with, um, for example, Beethoven than I did before because of how this, the questions they ask, the things they, they're thinking about, and I'm like, oh, this makes me really want to engage with Beethoven more. Or, you know, all these like big classics that I kind of was ignoring for a while, just like, oh yeah, like, I'm over that. It's been interesting kind of revisiting that through the class. Other than your piano teacher slash composition teacher who had you write a 12-tone piece, what were your other main influences when you were starting your compositional career? I really love Sinakis, and I still do, because I find it incredibly raw and direct. Your nervous system is like turned up really high with his music, and I really love that. It's also like what he asks the instruments to do, and it's some of which doesn't make any sense. I find really funny. <laughs> I think it's interesting to think about, especially coming from his background. Blah, 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 Zanakis, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I really liked No-No as well. I still really like No-No. 
I think it's incredibly nuanced. It's like, it's poetry. That's what I think of Nono. Uh, I remember the first time I heard Kaya Chernovin's work, and I was really into that. It's kind of like a long list, to be yeah, honest with you. I mean, there's Chelsea, obviously Lock and Mon for me. You know, some of these like new music giants, I guess. You mentioned Tiang for the Western classical music history class. Yeah. And it made me think of something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is, is there a connection or what is the remaining connection between Beethoven and what we're doing? Um... That's such a hard question because I don't want to be the composer that's like, I'm engaging with history or I'm making commentary on it, but I also don't want to be like, oh, I'm not engaging with history because that's also weird. So I don't, I don't know. Like, what, is, <laughs> what does our shit have to do with Beethoven? I think the most obvious answer is notation. There's still this obsession with sound objects and developing sound objects and things like that. It's hard. What do you think? I mean, I'm not sure either. I've been thinking about it as a singer, and I think that the tradition of like teaching singing from one person to another, of like finding the best way to sing, is still useful Mm -hmm. to me now. It's not that I'm interested in like proving that we are somehow classical music or something, but I'm feeling like a craving to get as much as I can from tradition. Whereas when I was younger, I think I shunned tradition so what are like the aspects of the classical tradition that we are benefiting from I guess I think for me I'm not at least now I'm not thinking about my relationship with classical music as a composer as much as I'm just in awe of music in general and it happens to be that I'm taking classical music and finding pieces that I think are beautiful being okay with the simplicity of that interaction do you believe that music does it have a purpose in the world outside of music, you know, like, do you hope to, (laughs) do you hope to, in some small way, change the world with your music, or do you think that, yeah, or what do you think about that? I think anything that exists is bound to create waves, so that's kind of my outlook on it, and that's not me trying to evade responsibility of what I make, I just think for sure it will make waves, and I try to account for those, but there's millions of ways that I cannot account for what would happen or how it would affect people. And I am invested in maybe trying to use my music to maybe expand a certain consciousness of things. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, no, that <laughs> makes sense to me. You want, like, generally you want good waves. Maybe some bad ones too, but not bad, bad waves, you know? Just bad enough mm, to make you think. Bad enough. Yeah. Just misbehavior. Yeah, yeah. Misbehavior is very important. Yeah. I think so, too. We're going to move into a segment on this that's extremely important. Um, And it's called, Would You Rather? And why? Oh, yeah, you have to explain why, too. That's the catch. Sorry. So would you rather have the mouth of a lizard or the mouth of a small shark? I would rather have a mouth of a lizard. Because they're, like, their mouths always look so sticky to me. I actually had nine lizards growing up. So, oh, so you have like an affinity. I ha- yeah, exactly. This is all at there. once or in yeah, s- yeah, yeah. <laughs> all at once, Charlotte. <laughs> Charlotte looks kind of pained by that. But they, their mouths like, their mouths just like open or close. It's like it's all one action. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, think sharks have too much nuance. Too much nuance for me. That well, their teeth are too obvious. You know, 
But if you had your face with a lizard mouth the size of a mouth would be on the lizard, it would be very not obvious. You would really you would really be working against that obviousness. I think I'd look great also. You would. That's true. With a lizard mouth. Would you rather never be able to smell again or never be able to taste again? Uh, you know, I want to be cool and say never be able to taste again, but I don't think that's true. I love food too much. But smell has memory, and I, yeah. So, okay, never be able to smell But they're again. also related. Like, I think people yeah. who can't smell also, their sense yeah. of taste is, like, dulled a little bit. Yeah. So it's kind of a But is it the same the other way around? If you can't taste as much, you can't smell as much? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know either. Well, if you know, <laughs> let us know. Okay. Would you rather spend five years in space travel or five years exploring the Earth? The Earth? Obviously, I, I don't have a reason. That's, it seems like, oh man, I don't want to be trapped in this stupid little box. Yeah, it would be uncomfortable. <laughs> you have to wear something over your head. It's stressful. And there's no gravity, which means there's like no soul. That sounds horrible. And I love the earth. Okay, also related. Okay, would you rather be, for the rest of your life, continually trying to make sense or stability in an unfamiliar environment or trying to change the same familiar place? Like, would I, wow. I, I think it depends on if you want your experience to be for yourself or for others in this case. If I were going to do the experience for myself, I'd rather be trying to make a stable situation out of a chaotic one. If I'm thinking about other people, I'd be making the chaos out of an overly prosaic one. Why is one for yourself and one for other people? I think because I prefer to be in a chaotic situation than a stable one. So if I'm thinking of myself, I would say the former. Both of them are really kind of making making the waves too if you make a chaos in an... In a stable zone, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any upcoming things that we should have in our calendar? Obviously other than um, this concert on December 14th. At St. Mary's in Harlem. With Bethany's new piece. I'm going to make some good and some bad, <laughs> bad waves. This <laughs> behaving waves. I have a piece after this. I should know the date. This is bad. But I think April or May. With Columbia Composers. With, and that'll be for Distractfold. And I started working on that a little bit. It's really strange. I made these, probably saw on Instagram, these like little headbands that interact with the instruments. And I'm thinking to do some- They like, have all these little balls hanging off them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They have like chains and fuzzy plant life, dead plant life, and all sorts of weird stuff hanging off of them to like kind of interact with the instruments because, you know, I was thinking it's really hard to control that <laughs> head movement. So that's something I'm thinking about for that. And then, the main big thing that I'll be preparing for all year, basically, is this portrait concert with 113 Composers Collective in Minnesota. And they'll be doing a bunch of, a lot of my older pieces, actually, which is kind of cool. One of them, Zero, I wrote in 2010. I think you played that one, too. So, yeah, I'll hear, like, a piece that's, like, almost 10 years old which is really cool and then I'll be writing a new piece for that concert as well so there'll be a premiere so those are the main things right now and I'm really excited about thank you so much Bethany thank you thank you Bethany thanks for talking with us (laughs) and thank you for listening
This has been the Talk Editions podcast, episode number one with Bethany Young. For links to Bethany's music and to things we talked about in this episode, check out our show notes. The music you heard throughout this episode was from Bethany's new piece, At Midnight I Walked to the Middle of the Desert, which talk will premiere along with a new piece by Brandon Lopez on December 14th at 8pm at St. Mary's Church in Harlem, and the tickets are pay what you can. If you're listening to this, I'm guessing maybe you kind of liked our first episode. You should subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss episode number two, featuring Brandon Lopez, which could come out at literally any minute. Also, make sure to rate us and tell your friends about us. This podcast was recorded at the Columbia Computer Music Center, produced by Laura Cox and Charlotte Mundy, and edited by Charlotte Mundy. That's me. For more information about talk, go to talkensemble.com. Thanks for listening. What was that?